Well, thank you very much for that uh, warm introduction and um, for having me here on the lawn with you all. What a what a uh, amazing setting this is. My understanding is that it was supposed to be or possibly rainy today. It's not looking like that's going to happen at all. So the Lord really has blessed, I think, all of us with that little gift um, uh, of the, the dry and the sun, or at least not too much sun, though, because if it's too much sun, then it becomes glaring, and I think it's right behind me, so all of you would see this halo effect, which you should naturally see anyway, by the way, which, of course, completely contradicts the introduction where the humility was talked about. You know, I was thinking about that as she was uh, introducing me, and she was talking about the humility at RZIM, and the, the reality is there's so many people who are gifted by God but uh, don't really see it as something that uh, is to be lorded over anybody. But someone had sent me a clip of a TV show uh, where this woman was talking about how good she is at things. And she says, um, I'm, I'm, I'm good at everything except for humility because I'm great at that. Um, and I thought that was hilarious, but um, what a joy it is to be with you this morning. Thank you so much. And I want to speak to you on an issue that I think is very, very relevant to our culture today. And it's something that is saturating, actually, our interactions with culture right now. And I think it's funny, when you think about the way 2020 started, and every pastor, it seems to me, and every captain of industry, whether they were leading major Fortune 500 companies or their own small company, and uh, people who were involved in the school systems or whatever, they were all talking about in January, about 2020 being the year of vision. And it's obvious the reason why, you know, 2020 being perfect vision and all these kind of things and saying that in 2020, we're going to see things for the first time, perhaps more clearly than ever. Whether we're in, in, in church, we're going to see something about what God is doing and what we need to do to effectuate major changes and accomplishments for the good of humanity and for the sake of Christ. If it was in business, it was, what are we going to do to push ourselves to the next level? If it was our schooling, like, what are we going to see for our own future? And the class of 2020 and the whole idea of seeing things not only past but also in the future and what are we going to do to make huge changes for our country and then the Australian wildfires happened and the smog seems to cover up our vision then COVID-19 happens and we get isolated and we get put into our homes and we can't really see anybody anymore because the lockdown happens and that seems to uh, cloud our vision and now all we see is people through pixelated screens we don't actually interact with people anymore and we're all getting tired of while technology is allowing us to do work we're starting to get tired of looking at people through zoom meetings and frankly this outdoor area where I'm able to speak for the first not for the first time but outdoors for the first time I spoke in quite a bit now in the past few weeks to live audiences and what a refreshing thing that was because I was speaking largely to the little green dot that symbolizes the camera on my computer but now we're seeing the value of people because we're getting tired of seeing them over screens and then of course all the social upheaval we're experiencing right now where all of the things we think we may have solved are suddenly coming to light that maybe things need a lot more work socially and in the human heart And even now, the west coast of the U.S. seems to be on fire from even natural causes, not even human causes. We're like, my goodness, there's so much smog. There's so much cloudy. We had this vision of 2020 being a year of vision, and now it's just a year of fog. Can I challenge that for a moment, if I might, and just tell you that I don't see it that way? I think that we're seeing things more clearly than ever. 
because of what's going on. I think that as we grow tired of the screens, and even young people are looking at these screens. I remember walking into a room and seeing a bunch of young people sitting around, looking at their screens, sharing a joke, and no one said anything, and everyone was laughing at something that no one talked about because they shared it through their devices. But then I remember also seeing a group of young people in a, in, in, a, in a house and someone came to visit in the middle of the lockdown when no one was going outside at all. And suddenly they jumped up from their devices and couldn't wait to bump elbows with someone because another human being happened to show up. And they saw the gift, the rare gift of just looking at another human being who's outside of their family in the face and sharing a smile. Or we're seeing the value of the dinner table, where all the busyness that used to occur didn't happen anymore. All the schedules suddenly got a little bit less hectic, and we're seeing the value of these kind of things. And maybe we're seeing things socially for the first time because of what's going on. You know, God says this, and um, uh, that we'll see his handiwork, and we'll see our need for that which is beautiful, subtle, and important, not through our pleasure, but through our pain. That's what Lewis says. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And we're seeing him clearly and we're hearing him clearly, I think, in many ways for the first time. The church attendance online for so many people has skyrocketed because of what's going on. People have reached out to us because of what's going on, and they're looking for answers. But the culture today is striving against that in some ways. What I want to speak to you about is the cancel culture and the way Jesus can be our eternal contemporary in the sense that if we understand his Eastern context, his ancient Eastern context from way back in the ancient East and see how if we understand him, we'll begin to see something that he goes against the cultural narrative right now. He goes against the narrative that says that Christianity is a white imperialistic religion used by people from the West to impose itself on dark-skinned people and women. That is the current cultural narrative that the Christian message is this white western imperialistic invention used to control people and to denigrate people but if you look at the pages of the new testament and you see jesus in his eastern context you will begin to see that there is an authenticity to jesus that he is not the sort of icon of white western imperialism rather what he is is he is the olive skin savior who changed the west for the good that it was him in three short years of ministry managed to change the entirety of the Roman Empire, an empire that did not see people as equal, that did not see people as persons in and of themselves. You had to earn the right to be called a person. And Jesus says, no, everyone is made in God's image. And then he dies on a cross and rises from the dead to prove that you and I have value. And that is what changed the Roman Empire. So the current cultural narrative is that the empire and that the West used Christianity to impose itself on the East and on the South and on people of color. The reality is it is this colorful Jesus who actually imposed himself, giving himself to a culture that did not see equality. And he says all of us can see that equality for the first time. 
It's exactly the opposite of what the narrative says. You know, when I read the pages of Scripture, as a Middle Easterner, I read the pages of Scripture even before I became a Christian, and many of you will know, I came from a Muslim background. And after nine years of searching, I began to see the authenticity and the beauty of the gospel that I once thought was silly, that I once thought was not worth believing. I began to look at the evidence and the philosophical, the historical, the existential, and I began to see how compelling and powerful this message actually is, but how actually authentic it really is. As a Middle Easterner, when I read the pages of Scripture, I don't see something that is meant for one set of ethnic people. I do see the olive oil dripping off of each page. I do see the conversations that sound so familiar to me like family members of mine would be having, the idioms they used. I smell the cumins and the spices and the garlic in the description of the feasts and a smile creeps across my face because of the authenticity of who Jesus is. But then you might, someone might say, well, that's fine and that's dandy and that's wonderful for back then. And it seems like he's relevant to people 2,000 years ago, but I want to suggest to you and I want to defend for you this morning that Jesus is actually our eternal contemporary. Yes, he has that authenticity of being Middle Eastern, but if you understand his Middle Eastern context, if you understand why he did the way he, th- th- things the way he did, why he spoke the way he spoke in the culture in which he spoke, and then you can parallel it to what's going on today, you'll begin to see that this Jesus isn't just for a bunch of olive-skinned people 2,000 years ago in a Roman outpost in an obscure area of the empire. No, he's for us. He is, to quote Leslie Newbigin, our eternal contemporary. How is that so? How is that so? When I speak to us about the cancel culture... Many of you will know what I'm speaking of. And judging by the gradients and uh, the level of gray in the, in the audience, some people will know what I'm talking about and some people won't. The cancel culture simply refers to um, what we're currently experiencing in culture where is we used to have a culture where if someone said something controversial, if someone said, made a claim that didn't necessarily comport with what the culturally accepted wisdom was, we would entertain that idea. We would disagree with it possibly, but we would at least entertain it. We would hear their evidence. We would hear their arguments. We would disagree or come to agree, whatever it was. We had a civil debate at some point because we had a civil public square. But now things are very much like the Roman Colosseum. They're very much gladiator fights where our champion and their champion come together and we see who is the one who quote unquote destroys the other one. And then we post that on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it might be. The cancel culture has arisen out of that phenomenon, where now what happens is we don't listen to debate. If someone happens to say something, whether on purpose or even by mistake, if they say something that happens to go against the culturally accepted wisdom of the day, whether it be on race or whether it be on sex or whether it be on gender or whether it be on religion or whether it be on politics, whatever they happen to say, if it goes against the ever-changing, extremely fickle cultural sensitivities of the day, if it happens to offend someone, we don't engage in debate. What we do is we cancel that person. If you're a famous athlete, we stop buying your jerseys. If you're a famous actor, we start to boycott your movies. If you're a famous author, we boycott your books. And if you're just a a regular one of us, a mere mortal as it were, and you have your own set of friends, whether on social media or an actual Uh, social interactions, and you say something that happens to go against what your friends believe or what the culture believes or what the school happens to believe, we cancel you, we stop following you, we get rid of you, and maybe even we shame you into silence. 
That's what's happening now. Friends, can I suggest something to you? This is not new. It's becoming contemporary. It seems like it's new, but this is exactly the culture Jesus lived and worked in, in terms of his ministry, 2,000 years ago. This seems like it's a Western invention, this cancel culture, but I have news for you. My people are the ones who invented it. You're welcome. We know how to do this better than anybody. It's an ancient practice. Now, sociologists and people who study missions will tell you that the world is often divided up into how they look at morality. How are they enforcing morality? So in the West, we're a very individualistic culture. You know, we have this whole idea of my right to believe what I want to believe, my right to worship as I want to worship, my right to say what I want to say, my right to do this and my right to do that. And that's wonderful and it's valid and it's good. That's what makes this whole idea of Western democracy so wonderful is that we have the protection of individual rights. But we also have in our culture a desire for Western people to go and just break ground and smash through barriers and be frontiers people and whatever it might be. And that's wonderful because it fosters innovation. It does. It has a wonderful side to it. But it also has a shadow side. Like everything in life, this side of heaven, it has a shadow side, the bright side and the shadow side. And so the bright side of it is that it allows for innovation and it allows for individual freedoms. The shadow side is that we are so obsessed with our individualism that we often don't think about what we say and think and do and believe what the impact that is on the broader community. It's my way, to quote Frank Sinatra. And it's my life, to quote Bon Jovi. Many of you have no idea who I'm quoting. But this is the culture. Now there's good and there's bad, but what ends up happening in that kind of a culture is how you enforce morality is individualistic. So we have what's called in, in, the, in the West, an innocence and guilt culture. So if I were to do something that goes against the moral rules of, this, of the culture or whatever it might be, there'll be something inside me, something internal that will sort of prick my conscience and require me to like go and do something about it, either confess what I've done or try to make amends for what I've done. So in, the, in, in an innocence and guilt culture, you are innocent and then you become guilty, but you can exonerate yourself by either confessing the sin or doing something to make up for it. In other words, because it's so individualistic, you can fix you. The East is very different than all of this. The East is, while it has some level of individuality, it has a lot of emphasis on community. You know, what you do affects the family, and what the family experiences affects the community, and what the community experiences affects the nation. And everyone is obsessed with how things look. What is the perception? It do, is what I do honorable in the light of the community's views, or does it bring shame? And so this communal nature has its positivities because we do think about the way what we do affects other people, but it also has its shadow side. And the shadow side is this, is we are so obsessed with how what we do might be perceived by people outside of ourselves that we will often not follow the truth, even when it's presented to us and we know it, we intellectually assent, we know this is true, we won't often follow it because sometimes the truth goes against the culturally accepted morality or the culturally accepted religion of our region. And to do so, to accept the truth when it goes against the tradition would be considered shameful. 
And that's why the East is categorized as an honor and shame culture. It's communal. People often want to seek honor, and that's wonderful. They want to avoid shame, and that's wonderful as well. But sometimes the shadow side is this, is that you will actually conform to what the culture wants, not because what they want is true, but because what you want is honor. And you're terrified of being shamed. Doesn't that sound familiar? Can I submit to you that the, that the West is slowly losing its individuality and now becoming to, be, uh, to embrace not the good side of an honor and shame culture, but the bad side of an honor and shame culture where we reject the truth. We won't even consider the truth if we're worried that we'll be shamed out of existence, if we're worried that we'll be canceled. Jesus dealt with this. He dealt with it over and over again all the time. Now, I want you to notice something. In an honor and shame culture that actually is, that, that is immersed in the idea of community, what I do and think has to conform to what the community wants affects the way you have to fix a problem, a social problem. So in the, in the West, when we were mostly guilt and innocence, if I did something wrong, I could make up for it by doing something right. But in an honor and shame culture, that's not how it works because your identity is linked to what you do. So in an honor and shame culture, to quote a woman named Juliet November, she says this, in an honor and shame culture, if you do something wrong, you become someone wrong. You become someone bad. And so fixing it by doing something won't fix it. You have to fix it by becoming someone different. You need an identity fix. That's interesting because that's exactly what Jesus had to offer everyone who lived in an honor and shame culture, and he can offer that to each one of us today. You know, you see this happening right now. Let me give you two examples, if I could, and then I'll move along to how Jesus actually addresses this. And I know in a, in a crowd this size, sprawled out as wide as it is, there are many of us who are experiencing the sense of shame, either a sense of shame that we're inflicting upon ourselves or that the culture has inflicted upon us and we feel it's unfair, maybe even deserved. By the end of the morning, what I want to offer you is a hope that Jesus can replace that sense of shame with a sense of honor. You know, it was not long ago that the famous author, J.K. Rowling, who authored the wildly popular Harry Potter series of books, was the darling of so many people, admired by many, outspoken critic of a lot of things. Her politics leaned quite left, and so many people who were on that side of the political spectrum were lauding her as a, a, a champion, a voice for their views, and everyone loved her until she happened to say something. And she happened to say very recently that because of her views on uh, sexual abuse, and uh, whether mental or physical, of women, and she champions um, the, the liberation and freedom from this abuse, she happened to say that she actually believes that sex is not a construct, that gender is not a construct of society, but that males are actually males and females are actually females, and there's not a way to actually bridge that uh, in that sense. She got labeled as transphobic and a bunch of horrible things for making that one comment. So otherwise she was loved, otherwise she was liked, but because she made this one comment, because she happened to say something that went against the cultural norms, she 
she was labeled with all the worst labels possible, receiving even death threats and all these kind of things. They canceled her, called for the boycott of her books. In fact, some of the actors involved in the movies that were made based on those books tried to distance themselves from J.K. Rowling because of what she said. They canceled her. They didn't debate with her. Canceled. That's it. Canceled. Now, you know what's interesting? Is that sometime later, not much longer, she signed an open letter, and I think it was published in Harper's, with a bunch of other authors and other people who were prominent, uh, prominent uh, public intellectuals. And they called for an end to the cancel culture. They called for a rise in free speech, even if you don't agree with that free speech. And 150, maybe even more people signed this letter. And then they interviewed one such person who agreed with the letter and agreed with Rowling on the issue of free speech, not on the issue of gender, but on the issue of free speech. And they told this person, hey, did you know that J.K. Rowling sound, signed, uh, signed this letter as well? And this this person said, you know what? I didn't know that. Take my name off of it. Do you see what's going on there? You can agree with a statement, but you will remove yourself from the statement because the wrong kind of person happens to agree with you. We cancel each other in very public ways. But I want to share with you the story of someone who got canceled semi-publicly, but it was very, very private in what it meant for her. Her name was Ann Darwin. Anne Darwin was the wife of a very wealthy man named John Darwin. And John Darwin fell on some hard economic times, and he concocted a scheme. And this is the kind of guy he is. He's a little bit of a, uh, to say he's a little bit of a narcissist would be actually generous. He's quite a narcissist. He, he concocts a scheme where he says to his wife, Anne, we're going to go out on a canoe trip, and we're going to fake my death. We're going to say that I went overboard or whatever it is, and that um, uh, I got lost at sea. And then we're going to collect the insurance money, and that'll be a wonderful way for us to live out our years in retirement in some South American or Central American country where no one will know who we are and these kind of things. But you have to keep it up, Anne. You have to keep up the lie. I'll be in hiding, but you keep up the lie, and they'll, they'll search for me. They'll never find me, and we can collect the insurance money, and we can live happily ever after, as it were. And for whatever reason, and largely because of the way that John Darwin had manipulated and, and emotionally abused Anne over the course of their lives, she went along with it. And they spent thousands and thousands of dollars looking for her husband, and it was making the news and all these things. And then she said, look, he is dead or missing or something. But eventually someone snapped a photo of John and Anne on a beach, and the ruse was over. It was over. They discovered the fraud, and she and he were convicted of fraud. She went to jail. Now, of all the things she was called, convicted felon, fraudster, liar, trickster, all these horrible things she was called, the thing that got her the most, that almost caused her to end and take her own life, was this one label. Her sons were so ashamed because they had, because she lied to them for five years, and they had to hear these lies and they finally realized the truth after five years. They couldn't believe their mother had done this. The one label that stuck with her and almost caused her to end her own life was the label bad mother. That brought so much shame to her. That's the one that almost got her. You see, this cancel culture can be quite public, but also an intensely private thing. And I know some of us know what this is all about. But Jesus speaks to this. He speaks in this cancel culture, in this honor and shame culture we're experiencing now. You know, uh, when you look at Jesus' interactions in the New Testament, you begin to see something. People always ask Jesus questions, and they ask them in two ways. They either asked him publicly or they asked him privately. 
Now, in the public questions, you'll see almost every single time someone asks him a question in public, it was never to get information. It was always to gain honor for themselves and to shame Jesus, to make him look like a fool in front of the crowds. This is a very Middle Eastern thing to do. So they would ask a public question, not to get an answer, but they would ask it in a tricky way so that he would look foolish and they would look brilliant. Does that sound familiar at all to you? Do you ever go on Twitter and see someone say, honest question, dot, 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 and then they ask a question? The way it's worded is that no matter how you answer, you look like a fool. This is what's happening in our culture today. Whether it's in reporters or we ask each other, we ask each other gotcha questions. We don't actually want information. We just want to look brilliant and make the other person look foolish. That happened to Jesus all the time. I want you to think of the incident where the Sadducees came up to Jesus and asked him a question. Now, when you look back at that time, there were a bunch of different sects within um, the, the Jewish uh, 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 community. And one of the groups was the Pharisees who believed in an afterlife, believed in a physical resurrection. There was another group called the Sadducees who did not believe in an afterlife. They believed that once you die, that's it, and there is no physical resurrection. So they go to Jesus and they ask him a question. They call him good teacher, you know, buttering him up, trying to make him uh, off his guard. And they say, good teacher, there was a man amongst us who was married, and before he had children, he died. And so he married the, uh, so, so uh, his wife married his brother, because that was the custom, to keep the family line going. If a man died childless, his wife would marry, if that man wasn't married yet, marry the man's brother. So he married the man's brother. Before they could have children, that man died. And she married the other brother. And she did this seven times. She had seven husbands during this course of this course of this life. Now, if there's a resurrection, when they are resurrected, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Trying to make Jesus look foolish. Saying this whole resurrection thing has got all kinds of philosophical problems. So Jesus, please explain to us how it's possible that these men could be married to the same woman. And Jesus responds and he says, you don't even know the scriptures. Basically saying, you ignoramuses. But he does it in a compelling way, interestingly enough. He doesn't call them names. He basically says, you do not know the scriptures because in those days, they will neither be married nor given in marriage, but be like the angels. In other words, they had studied the letter of the law, but they had not actually studied the meaning of the law. And they were using this to try to trap Jesus. And he saw through it. Now, what's interesting about this is the way in which Jesus responds is he doesn't just respond with a technical realities of the scripture, what he responds with is saying, you and I have a future hope of resurrection. It's not as bleak as these men say. So he wasn't trying to denigrate them and raise honor for himself. But in the process of telling the crowd who was hearing it, you all can have the honor of a resurrected glorified body. His honor goes up in the community and theirs goes down. What's interesting about this is the Bible says at some point that no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, I often wondered about that because the Bible says no one dared ask him any more questions. And yet you see in the Bible after that statement, people were asking him questions. And you're thinking, is that a contradiction? No, it's not a contradiction if you understand the way in which the, uh, the Bible is making this phrase. No one dared ask him any more public questions. And that's when they all stopped because Jesus knew, like a jujitsu master, how to take their energy and flip it around on them, but at the same time, not necessarily vanquish his opponent, but show them their need for who he was. But they did ask him private questions. And whenever someone asked Jesus a private question, it was to get information. It was to get something of hope out of this man. 
Think of Nicodemus coming under cover of night. Think of the woman at the well when she asked her questions. She started off with a chip on her shoulder and she ends up being included in the kingdom of God. This woman of intense moral and public, religious and even ethnic shame was honored by this Jewish man and she became the world's first cross-cultural missionary. When it's private, when it's sincere, he answers the question. When it's an attempt to shame him, he answers the question. But it's not the question you asked, it's the question of your own heart. That is what we're doing now in our culture. You know, I, I remember this happens. Uh, I was at an open forum at a major, major venue in Calgary, uh, in Canada, and I was giving a talk on meaning. Can we find meaning without God? And the answer, I think, is no. But we can find meaning through God. And there was a Q&A afterwards, and you could ask questions two ways. You could ask questions at the microphone, face-to-face with me in front of the crowd, or you could ask them by text. And people asked in various ways. But what was interesting was when the Easterners came up to the microphone, they almost never, and they were non-Christians, there was a lot of different people in the crowd. There were atheists, there were Muslims, there were Hindus, based on the, the context where, we, where we, I was speaking. And a lot of the Easterners would come up to the microphone, and they wouldn't ask a question for information. They were asking me gotcha questions. One guy comes up to the microphone, he's a Muslim guy, and he says to me, where does Jesus say anywhere in the Bible these words, I am God, worship me? Where does he say that? Now, he knows that Jesus doesn't use that formula. He never says, I am God, worship me, in sort of this robotic way. Uh, so I asked him back. I'm like, so let me ask you a question. Does he have to say it your way? Can he say it his own way? Or who do you think you are telling God how he should speak? What if he says it his own way? What if he says that he's the one who sends the prophets, that he's the master of the angels, that he is the Lord of the temple, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that he is the Alpha and the Omega? What if he says those words? Will that be good enough? Because he was trying to shame me, I wasn't trying to shame him back. What I was trying to expose was the intent. And there were other people as well in the crowd who did this. But you know what was interesting? There was a question that came over text from another Muslim as well. And he said this, remember my talk was on meaning and purpose. And he said, I believe in God, I'm a Muslim, but I still find my life boring and meaningless. Can you help me? Why is that? Do you see the difference in the questions? When one is attempted to do it in public, it becomes a thing about shame. Not always, but in this particular instance. The other time, it was actually to get an answer. And they had to do it anonymously because they were fearing the shame that maybe someone will recognize me. Someone will know what I'm doing. Someone will know I'm questioning things, and I can't have that. Jesus answers these things so beautifully. Let me give you just two more examples. I know time runs short. We have a Q&A plan, and of course, if the Spirit so moves, baptisms are available today. Would love to see that happen. Jesus is our eternal contemporary. He speaks to his context of honor and shame, and he speaks to our context of honor and shame, but also the deepest questions of our minds. I want to give you an example. If you read Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, you see this this parable that Jesus gives. Jesus gives this parable about what the kingdom of heaven is like, and it's the parable of the generous employer. And so the story goes like this. I won't read it because time runs short, but the story goes like this. Check it out for yourself. Jesus is talking about who God is and his character, and he says, 
there is this master of a vineyard, and this is the proxy for God. This is who God is in the vineyard. There's this master of the vineyard, and he goes out in the morning to hire day laborers, people to work in his vineyard early in the morning. We do this now. You go to a Home Depot in some places or whatever it might be, and you see guys lined up at the parking lot waiting for, for labor for that day. They're drywallers or they're rough carpenters, whatever it is. They're looking for a day's wage that day, and someone comes and hires them, and they have a work for that day, and they can go home, and they can feed their families with the fruits of their labors. That happens today. It happened back then. So this vineyard owner goes out, and he wants to give people work to work in his vineyard, and he sees a bunch of guys standing out there waiting in a line, and he hires some. He says, okay, you guys come with me. They, they negotiate for a denarius, the, the money back then, and they uh, agreed for a denarius. That will be a fair day's wage for the work they do, and they go and they work. Now, the master of the vineyard comes back a second time, hours later, and he finds guys sitting there waiting for work. He hires some. He comes back a third time, a fourth time, even a fifth time when there's only one hour left in the day to work, and he still finds people waiting there hoping to get work, and he even asks them, why are you standing around idle all day? And they say, no one has hired us. They were waiting. Now, if you know anything about that culture, or even the way day laborer actually works, is that when you go to the Home Depot, or you go to wherever you need to go to get your day laborers, you hire everybody you can possibly hire that day in the morning. And because everyone knows that, at the end of the first round of hiring, basically everybody goes home because there's no more work to be had. What's the point of sitting around in the hot parking lot all day? Try to find some other way to make money, whatever it happens to be. And many of them don't get hired. They go home dejected, sorrowful, that they weren't able to provide for themselves or more importantly, for their families. And in an Eastern culture where honor and shame is everything, those men would have had to go home, not working in a vineyard, and go and tell their wives and their children, not today, I failed. And so they wait around, and they wait around, and they wait around. Now what's interesting is the master of the vineyard hires each one of them, and he pays them the same wage. He pays them all the denarius. So if they worked all day, or they worked for one hour, they all got the same amount. Now, in the parable, the guys who got hired first get paid last. And they see this. They see the other guys who worked for an hour getting paid the same amount of money. And they're thinking, my goodness, that's not right. You owe us more. Now, what's interesting about this is that when I wasn't a Christian yet, when I was still a Muslim, a, a Christian friend wanted to explain grace to me in the way God gives his grace freely to everyone equally. He said to me, read this parable. And I read this parable. And my first inclination was, did this guy read this parable? Because this seems terribly unfair. If that's Christianity, I want no part of that. But then I, my Middle Eastern sense kicked right in. I saw it. I saw it almost 30 seconds after I had that initial objection. And I said, you know what? I see what's going on here. As a Middle Easterner, I can tell you, I know what's going on here. Why did the men who worked for only one hour get paid the same amount of money that the first guys did? Because they had the faith to wait around all day, hoping that someone would help them avoid the shame of going home empty-handed. They were waiting for someone. They held out hope and held out faith that someone would honor them with an honest day's work, give them that gift, but not just charity, help them to be able to say they participated in all this and they could go home to their wives and their families and they could say, here's the money, I earned this, we can have bread. They waited all day. Their faith that someone would honor them was credited to them as if it was work. And that goes all the way back to Genesis where Abraham's faith 
that God would deliver on the promise was credited to him as if he was righteous. Just believing that God would honor him would allow God to honor him, would actually be credited to him as righteousness. This is the beauty of the scriptures, my friends, is that from Genesis to Jesus to Revelation, all the way through, there's a consistent message over and over again that though we are steeped in our shame and though we fear it, God will honor us if we have faith in him. He answers the honor and shame culture. But can I suggest something to you as well? There's so much about the, in this parable that this is about. I, I'm only touching the surface on this, but there's one other thing about this that I find remarkable. One of the reasons I love the Christian scriptures so much is that it's so pregnant with meaning and its children are many. This same parable, which speaks to an East honor and shame culture that we need to learn from today also speaks to philosophy. You know, one of the things I noticed at every college campus I've ever been to, uh, even the University of Delaware, very recently when we were there, every time we come to the microphone, someone asks the question, they say, how is it that God can blame us for our moral actions if we don't have free will? In other words, if God is in control of everything, if God is sovereign, then how do we actually have free will? And if we don't have free will, then how are we judged for our moral actions? Because Judgment has to come from freely chosen things. And so it seems like this philosophical conundrum, the idea of God is incoherent. This parable actually addresses that issue. Did you catch it? The men who got paid the denarius for, the, for, for, for working all day, the Bible specifically says they agreed with the master of the vineyard for the denarius worth of work. And they say, wait a minute, you owe us more money. And the master says, Friend, I paid you what you agreed to, and that was fair. Can I not do with, to, to whom I want with what I have? In other words, God is saying, you agreed, you exercised your free will for the denarius, and that was fair, but I get to do what I want with what I have. I am sovereign too. Human free will and God's sovereignty in one story, answering the East and the West, answering uh, ancient cultures and our current culture all at the same time. Your existence, my existence, your struggles, my struggles, philosophy and existence all in one story. That's what the scripture's all about. You know, when you look once again in John chapter nine, there's this story. I'm gonna race through this and then we'll end. There's a story of this man who was born blind and his disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents that he should be born blind? And Jesus says, neither, but that the glory of God might be shown. So Jesus goes and he wants to heal the man of his blindness. He's been bl blind his whole life. He's had to beg for his living his whole life because he can't work. And Jesus comes and he makes mud. He spits on the ground, makes mud, puts the mud on the man's eyes. And he goes, go wash in the pool called Siloam and you'll be, you'll be able to see. And the man does all that. Now, the question that naturally arises, why did Jesus make spit and put it on the man's eye, make mud, I'm sorry, with spit and put it on the man's eyes and heal him? And the answer, short answer is Jesus is a troublemaker. You see, this was done on a, on, 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 a, on, a, on a Sabbath day where no work could be done and nothing could be made. And so Jesus makes mud to heal the man so that the Pharisees would get upset and then confront Jesus. But because of who they are, they don't confront Jesus, they confront the young man 
who's just seen, who's just now seeing. And they think a scam is afoot, you see. They don't think that Jesus really healed this man because they don't believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. In fact, they were so convinced that Jesus was a charlatan that they issued an edict. The Pharisees said that whoever says Jesus is the Christ will be cast out of the synagogue. In other words, they will be canceled. It's the worst kind of cultural canceling they could do back then. To be cast out of the synagogue, it's like basically you're not even a Jew anymore. And here's this young man who's now been healed and he can't deny who Jesus is. And so now he faces the dilemma. Do I stand up for what just happened for me or do I capitulate to the cultural pressure? What happens? Now he stands up and says, look, I don't know. You guys say this guy's a sinner, but I I was blind and now I can see. That's up to you guys to figure out, but this is the guy who, who this is. Well, the Pharisees think a scam is going on. So they go to the man's parents and they say, is this really your son who you say was born blind? In other words, they're saying, Maybe this isn't really your son, or maybe this guy wasn't born blind at all, and you were using him as a fake um, sort of alms ask, someone who's, who's begging for money. You're using his illness as a fake, as a scam to get money. And they're like, no, 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 no. We know this is our son. We know he was born blind, but how he now sees and who opened his eyes, we do not know. That's a lie. It's a lie. You're telling me that this young man who was born blind and who was praying every day of his life and whose parents were playing every day of their lives for him to be able to see so he would be, be relieved of the shame of having to beg for his money. These same parents who now have their sighted son don't know who did it. When the story tells us he was telling everybody and their brother who did it, he didn't tell his parents. But you know what's interesting is that's what they say. They say, go ask him. He is of age. Now that's interesting. I'm going to speculate slightly here, if you don't mind my doing so. Why would they say he is of age? They would say that because he didn't look like it. Because the age of accountability, the age of adulthood in the Jewish culture is 13 years old. And maybe this young man was a man for about a year. Maybe he's 13, maybe he's 14. That's why they don't know if he's of age or not. And so they confront him. In other words, the parents are so terrified of being put out of the synagogue, are so terrified of being canceled that they throw their teenage son to the wolves. But like a good, strong, believing teenager, he won't have any of that. He gets a little cocky, he gets a little snarky, and they cancel him. They put him out of the synagogue. Now Jesus' honor and shame radar pings, boom, boom, boom. He's hearing it. He knows this is happening. And so what does he do? He goes to this young man, this newly sighted young man who has just been shamed publicly for his allegiance to the one who healed him. And he says to him, I have come that those who were once blind may now see, and those who thought they could see are now proven to be blind. In other words, these men are trying to ply you. They're trying to use leverage of a cheap, temporal, cultural honor. And they're trying to take that from you. And Jesus says this to this young man, I am giving you, in exchange for this cheap cultural honor bestowed by men, I am giving you the eternal heavenly honor that only the Son of God can bestow. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is this. In the midst of the pain of a cancel culture, in the midst of your own shame, you're going to be ridiculed. Maybe you did the thing you're being shamed for. Maybe you're being unfairly shamed. I don't know what it is. 
But here's what Jesus offers to you. He says, I can replace whatever cultural, temporal honor this side of heaven you have been offered, and I can give you an eternal one if you just care about what I think of you. You know, I look back and I, I, I do a lot of flying. And before COVID, I was all over the world. Um, hopefully that'll, that'll happen again. But um, because I travel a lot, I, I, I've seen a lot of movies that are appropriate to watch on planes, and I've seen everything that's appropriate that Delta has to offer. So recently, I was left with TED Talks of watching those. Um, and some of them are interesting, some of them are inane, but um, there was one particular one that I thought was fascinating. It was by Monica Lewinsky. Maybe you remember this story. And if you're too young, you won't, but Monica Lewinsky was an intern at the White House. And during the, the, the presidency of Bill Clinton, there was a scandal afoot because Monica Lewinsky and he had had an affair while President Bill Clinton was married to Hillary Clinton. And he denied it at first. He said, no, it didn't happen. He said, no, it did not, did not happen. And you can see the video, the footage, where he is adamant, he is outraged at the accusation. And he says, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. He denied it, making it look like she was that woman, the one who's out to get him. And then it becomes to light that this in fact did happen. He admitted it eventually, and she admitted it, of course. And Lewinsky was the victim of quite a bit of shaming online. Now, this is before social media, so it wasn't nearly as intense, but she was getting all these emails, all these things, calling her the worst imaginable names. And this is what she says in her speech, her TED Talk, where she talks about the culture of humiliation. She says, there are no perimeters about how many people can publicly observe you and put you in a public stockade. This shift, she says, has created what Professor Nicholas Mills calls a culture of humiliation. I was branded a tramp, a tart, and a few other names I can't mention in polite company. Uh, and of course, she said, that woman. I was seen by many, but actually known by few. And I get it. It was easy to forget that that woman was dimensional, had a soul, and was once unbroken. It's interesting that that woman is the, is the phrase that stuck with her. The word that and the word woman are not offensive. And the words that woman put together are not offensive. But when they're coupled the way he said it, was a denigration that she had a hard time living with because of the shame. And she said it was that. Not the guilt, although that was great. It was the shame that almost caused her to take her own life. The shame. Jesus addresses that. The Bible is this eternally contemporary book that gives sight and replaces it sorry, that takes blindness and replaces it with sight, that takes shame and replaces it with honor. And it is the Bible that speaks cross-culturally. It speaks to honor shame. It speaks to innocence and guilt. Jesus dies on a cross to pay the penalty that you and I deserve because of our guilt before God. So he is deemed guilty, even though he is innocent, so that you and I can be deemed innocent and justice can be served. That's a Western way of looking at it. But you look at it through the Eastern lens and Jesus bears the shame for the joy set before him him, despised the shame. He bore your shame and my shame so that you and I could feel the honor of God saying to us, you look like my son. He speaks east, he speaks west. He speaks first century, he speaks 21st century quite well. 
quite well. Even the Psalms say it. Psalm 25, verse 2, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. That's Eastern. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. But just a few verses later in the same Psalm, the Psalmist writes, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. That's Western. For it is great. Honor and shame, innocence and guilt converging. There's a reason why the root word of the word crucifixion is the Latin word crux, which means where all things come together. Innocence and guilt meet honor and shame in the cross. The reason why we're going through all of this in our lives right now and the fear of the honor-shame culture of the cancel culture is that people don't want to spend any time to understand what you mean or what you say. And we're striving so much to be understood. Thomas Bracken put it this way. He says, not understood. We move along asunder. Our paths grow wider as the seasons creep. Along the years, we marvel and we wonder why life is life. And then we fall asleep, not understood. Not understood how many breasts are aching for lack of sympathy. Ah, day by day, how many cheerless, lonely hearts are breaking. How many noble spirits pass away not understood. And then he calls for this. He says, oh God, that men would see a little clearer or just judge less harshly when they cannot see. Oh God, that men would draw a little nearer to one another. Perhaps they would draw nearer to thee and then be understood. Jesus understands you. He understands you. He gets the shame. He gets the need for honor. He gets the guilt and he gets the innocence you strive for. He gets it. All of these things coalesce. And that psalm, or that hymn from Isaac Watts, the Lord is just, as, just and kind, the meek shall learn his ways, and every humble sinner find the methods of his grace. For his own goodness sake, he saves my soul from shame, he pardons, though my guilt be great, in my Redeemer's name. Whatever language you're speaking, if it's guilt or if it's shame, Jesus speaks it, and he translates it into innocence and honor, and that's for you. We're going to move into a time of baptism and prayer. Friends, I'm going to ask you something, okay? We're going to be able to sit down and pray with you here, but also there's a time for baptism coming up. And if you've been felt, you felt moved, that maybe the Lord is speaking to you, then maybe there is something in your life that is so shame-ridden. Keep it to your, you don't have to share it with anybody, but it's something you've lived with, or there's a guilt a sense of guilt, and maybe you've never known the freedom that Christ can offer you in saying, I can exchange that guilt, I can exchange that shame for honor and innocence through him, not through what you can do, but through who he is. If you need to know who he is and you've never known who he is, I'm gonna ask you to do one thing. You don't have to come up and be baptized, none of that stuff. You can sit where you are in this vast array of people. I'm just gonna ask you, if you need to be liberated in the way Jesus can liberate you and you've never been before, would you just raise your hand, please? Just raise your hand. There's a hand. There's another one. There's another one. There's hands. There's hands way back, all over. Hallelujah. This is what Jesus offers you and me, and you need this. This is what it means to be a part of the family of God, and you're new. You're here. You're with us. One more chance. If you haven't raised your hand and you want to raise your hand and say, I need this liberation that Jesus offers me, this honor that he offers me, this innocence he offers me through him, just raise your hand one more time. It's a possibility. There's another one. There they are, there they are. Friends, at the close of the service, come and pray with us. Me and Pastor Bob and others will be happy to pray with you. 
and there's a pool here. You know, the Bible has this instance of the story where a guy is reading the scriptures and he doesn't quite understand it. And then Peter, I'm sorry, one of the disciples <laughs> with a P comes up to him and says, do you know what you're reading? And the guy says, I have no idea what I'm reading. Unless someone's explained this to me. And it's explained to him. And then finally, when his eyes are open to what the Bible is all about and who he is relative to God, he sees a pool of water and he says, why shouldn't I be baptized right now? I'm going to ask you a question, friend. If you have this liberation in Jesus and you have this for the first time, or maybe you've gotten saved recently and you've been planning it, the waters are right here. Why should you wait? Come and be baptized. When you dunk into this pool, your shame goes with you, but it does not come up with you. It is Jesus' honor and his innocence. Come and be baptized. Thank you all so much. God bless you.